it's important to know that there is no increased risk for the pregnancy as a result of having POTS. POTS is not contraindicated for choosing pregnancy. And pregnancy does not make POTS worse for the lifetime. It definitely makes it worse for the months that you're pregnant. So you can be very confident in taking POTS patients. They are totally within the scope of midwifery management. However, oftentimes extra measures need to be applied and or uh, consults or even a multidisciplinary team to manage that patient's symptoms throughout their pregnancy. Hi, my name is Augustine Colebrook, and I'm the principal at Midwifery Wisdom Collective. I speak on this podcast about big picture, political issues, and the future of our profession. Hey y'all, I am Jamara and I'm a midwife. I'm also a birth justice activist. And this season, I am looking forward to sharing stories of black midwives and the communities they serve. Hello, beloved birth community. I'm Angela Love, nurse midwife since 2004, preceptor and mother. I have a home birth practice called Midwife Love and a national telehealth practice called Midwife Rx. My mission is to keep birth choices available and to educate the next generation of midwives for our daughters and grandchildren. Matriarchy now. I'm Layla Wyatt. I get to share with you the voices of student midwives from across the country and beyond. This season, we focus on those students who just graduated, are about to sit for the NARM, or did yesterday, and we get tips and tricks for you for what happens at the end of the student midwife journey. Well, as you know, POTS is very near and dear to my heart. Um, and um, because of my deep dive research, I get lots of other consults and even people in my care who have POTS. And um, the needs are very unique. It's important to know that there is no increased risk for the pregnancy as a result of having POTS. POTS is not contraindicated for choosing pregnancy. And pregnancy does not make POTS worse for the lifetime. It definitely makes it worse for the months that you're pregnant. So you can be very confident in taking POTS patients. They are totally within the scope of midwifery management. However, oftentimes extra measures need to be applied and or uh, consults or even a multidisciplinary team to manage that patient's symptoms throughout their pregnancy. Um, but as long as they are uh, hemodynamically stable at the time of delivery, they, they can have a normal birth and home birth is totally within that scope. Birth center is totally within that scope. So I think that's really reassuring. A lot of people feel so terrible that they think there's no way this can be normal or there's no way I can be safe. But um, it's, it's a, another kind of correlation that I've learned in my research that is helpful to explain to clients who come to you is that POTS has the, um, has the life impact, of, uh, or what's the phrase, has the quality of life exactly the same as congestive heart failure. But it has no increased risk to life and wellness, and it does not decrease the lifespan potential. So. It is not life-threatening, but it feels like it is. And so it's important to validate the symptoms while at the same time reassuring their choices and their, their safety. 
So I have a few studies to present to you. I have some statistics to share with you. Um, I have some uh, actual case story to share. I am going to um, share a, a review. This was in the International Journal of Women's Health in 2022. Uh, the lead author is Kate Morgan. Um, and this is a literature review for uh, evaluation and treatment. So as you know, POTS or postular orthostatic tachycardia syndrome is a type of dysautonomia. And as a syndrome, syndrome means a collection of symptoms without a clear origin. The symptoms occur some of the time or all of the time together, but those collection of symptoms get called a syndrome. A syndrome is different than a disease. A disease has a known origin, right? So diabetes, diabetics, diabetes is a disease because it has a known origin, right? Uh, not enough insulin to process the sugar. POTS does not have a known origin. Um, and so it is a syndrome. And I think that's really important when we talk to clients because we really need them to understand that this is an evolving science. There is, there is some treatments to treat the symptoms, but we are not treating the cause of this disorder because we do not understand it. So it seems pretty clear um, that POTS symptoms occur after several precipitating events. Um, for instance, a large blood loss after surgery or after childbirth with a postpartum hemorrhage can absolutely result in uh, the diagnosis or, or treatment or the reality of POTS. Um, but the most common cause is um, a viral, a post-viral segue. So sometimes bacteria, but usually viral. And um, as I understand it, these, um, this viral infection causes damage to multiple parts of the body, uh, mostly in the central nervous system. And it affects the body's ability to um, process or perform autonomic functions. So um, one of the autonomic functions that we often take for granted because we don't ever have to think about it until you have POTS is that your body has um, an ability to stay vasostatic um, nor, uh, balanced. So no matter what position you're in, whether you're laying down, sitting up or standing, your blood volume defies gravity. The pumps and the channels and the valves in your entire circulatory system respond to minute changes with tiny little hormone and, um, and nerve conductor uh, information so that pumps turn on, uh, pressure increases or decreases depending on how you change your position, right? So we're gonna kind of dissect the word pot, the, the phrase POTS and then it'll make more sense. So postular is exactly the change in position and orthostatic is the pressure of the blood or all body fluid. Um, and tachycardia is one of the most common symptoms uh, which is present in everyone. And that is the racing heart rate as your posture changes. And then it's all together, it's a syndrome. And this is part of the big umbrella of syndromes called dysautonomia. Other dysautonomias can be caused by other reasons. So I'm simply talking about POTS today, which is under the umbrella of dysautonomia, but there's congenic dysautonomia issues and there's infection dysautonomia issues and there's you know other reasons. But for POTS, um, after surgery or childbirth with a hemorrhage, 
Um, the most common is a post-viral infection uh, consequence. It can also be post-bacterial infection. Um, it can also happen as the young woman starts to bleed. So menarche can cause symptoms of POTS. Um, <clears throat> and so I kind of want to bring these details all together. And now we're going off script and into just my own research and opinion. And that is that these causes all have one similarity. And that is iron deficiency. When you start bleeding and you are already deficient, when you have a virus and you're already deficient and it's eating the iron to replicate, or when you lose blood, you are experiencing severe iron deficiency. And so my hypothesis is that POTS is caused by prolonged iron deficiency impacting one of the 80 functions in our body that iron controls, orthostatic pressure would be one of them. Another symptom that is connected to this syndrome of POTS is a kidney damage that prevents the kidney from recycling sodium. So in a normal healthy person, we have a certain amount of sodium, you'll see it in the KFT test, right? So if you order, um, uh, a kidney function test, right? You should get uh, sodium, chloride, uh, potassium as some of those measures. If you order a liver or a kidney test, you know what I'm talking about? CMP, that's what it's called in the US. Sorry, I had Indian brain, uh, Indian labs in my brain. Um, when you order that, you'll get sodium and chloride, right? And these are almost always stable. If you have a healthy person, they can be dehydrated. They can have just run a mile. They can be pregnant. They shouldn't really vary very much regardless of even how much sodium they're consuming. The kidneys keep a stable amount of sodium and chloride in the bloodstream at all time. This uh, sodium recycling is damaged in POTS people. So normally what happens in a healthy person is that when you are um, eating um, uh, foods and you get some sodium in your body, it goes through the digestive system and then eventually gets filtered and um, added to the bloodstream. And then when you have waste product and it goes to be excreted uh, through the kidneys, that sodium is scrubbed and recycled back into the body. So you keep a stable amount of sodium. That system is broken in, in, in many POTS patients, not all, but many. And I do believe it is also healable. Um, I've helped several people heal this kidney injury, um, but that's not mainstream knowledge. Nobody talks about that very much, but um, it's very, I think it is healable, uh, but that sodium recycling is one of the reasons why the treatment is increased sodium, because we're losing it when we're POTS patients, we're peeing it out, whereas most people would be recycling. Um, okay, so let's continue to, to um, uh, talk a little bit about the symptoms. So um, the most common symptoms are um, that racing heart rate, um, there can be signs uh, uh, from that, from the patient, they will describe actual heart palpitations. They can describe chest pain. They can describe the feeling that their heart is racing. Um, they can describe feelings of sweating, um, feelings of graying out or blacking out. Um, this is called cinescope or pre-cinescope. And most cases of POTS do never experience cinescope. So you do not need to faint to be diagnosed with POTS. Only about 15% of POTS patients actually ever faint, but many of them feel like they're going to faint all day long and they get so used to it, they don't even complain about it anymore. 
Um, there are also some non-orthostatic symptoms associated with POTS and the primary one being fatigue. Um, and this is not like muscle fatigue, like after you've used your muscles, this is a whole body fatigue. It oftentimes also involves cognitive fatigue, which is sometimes called brain fog. There are headaches associated with POTS in almost all patients uh, because of that blood flow lack to the brain. And there can also be pretty extreme gastrointestinal symptoms, um, which include um, uh, usually diarrhea, but uh, constipation has also been associated. There's also a lot of gas. And when pressed, most POTS patients will describe a mechanism called gastric emptying, where with certain triggering events, they will have rapid uh, almost uncontrollable diarrhea at random times, not associated with the food that they eat. Um, and then there is also many bladder symptoms associated with POTS. Um, the most common one being that they need to urinate more frequently at night. And the reason for this is when you are upright most of the day, um, and that we do have that blood pooling effect in the lower extremities because those pumps are not pushing the blood upwards. When you finally do lay horizontal at night, that blood, that blood redistributes, that fluid redistributes, and we suddenly have excess waste stored in the body that must be emptied. So it is simply uh, another uh, symptom of that postular uh, dysfunction. POTS is four times more likely to happen in women, particularly of childbearing age, and it's most likely to present during the teen years. Um, and so obviously this is definitely a concern for pregnancy and postpartum health. Uh, before COVID, it was estimated that 3 million people in the United States had POTS. But since COVID, 15% of the U.S. population developed post-COVID symptoms, long COVID, and 76% of those long COVID sufferers have POTS, which, if you want to do the math, um, relates to 40 million Americans are now suffering from POTS, and almost all of them are women. So yes, this is important for us to know about you will definitely have a POTS patient in your office, probably already do. So let's talk about diagnosis. Most people are grossly underdiagnosed unless they were very, very sick post COVID or post um, a viral infection or post a childbirth. And they were very dogmatic about pushing and pushing and pushing for diagnosis. And they lived in Amherst, Massachusetts or Houston, Texas, which are the only two major POTS clinics they probably don't have a diagnosis. Diagnosis is very simple, and I encourage all midwives to add this to your repertoire. When you're doing a belly check, when you start the belly check, put on a pulse oximeter and tell them to relax. Talk sweetly, massage the belly, check the baby's position, measure fundal height, do all the things. And then when you're done, have them sit up and stand up and watch the pulse oximeter. If the number of that resting calm number jumps 30 beats or more, you have diagnosed POTS. That is not normal. Normal people should not raise max more than 15 beats in a change of position. And within moments, it will regulate to come back to pretty much baseline. 
abnormal injured central nervous systems cannot compensate because the pumps are not pushing the blood up where it belongs. And the body essentially feels like it's going into hypovolemic shock. So the heart starts racing, the blood pressure will drop a little bit, not tremendously, but a little bit, sweating, heart palpitations, feeling sick, uh, graying out, blacking out, uh, their ears may ring, uh, they may develop an instant headache, and they feel horrible. This is because there's not enough blood to their brain. So now that we kind of understand the symptoms and the diagnosis, if you ever do that test with someone and you get like 22, 29, something like that, they need a referral for a tilt table test. And this is the standard in medicine to test for POTS. A tilt table is exactly like what it sounds like. It is a bed with straps. They lay down, they put all the heart monitors and the blood pressure and everything on. And then instructing the patient not to use their muscles, the table moves them until they're upright. And when those patients do not have engaged calf muscles, which are doing the work of pushing some blood up, then you will see the POTS response. So the tilt table test is really useful for people that are compensated enough and they're kind of borderline, uh, but it is not necessary for people who are already suffering pretty significantly because you can, you can test that in your office. You don't need any special equipment. I do, for your own protection and liability, always recommend that once you have identified this, you can say, I do recommend you go get an official diagnosis with your doctor so it's in your medical records, but you can still treat them appropriately and help them get the resources that they need to make the lifestyle and diet changes that improve their quality of life, okay? So the most important change in their lifestyle and diet is to have a full capacity of blood at all times. It sounds really basic, but they can't go through the ups and downs that normal folks do throughout the day, right? So uh, you wake up in the morning and you're kind of dehydrated because you haven't had a sip of water in 12 or 14 or 16 hours, depending on the day. That cannot happen with POTS patients. They will feel horrible instantly. They cannot go into the hot weather and have their vessels dilate as a result of the heat without a lot of measures to protect them. They cannot go into hot steamy showers or saunas or hot tubs without measures to protect them. They cannot exercise, go running, or otherwise sweat and lose electrolytes without measures to protect them. So you can get, and I am living proof, you can get a very good baseline quality of life with these measures where you can live your normal life. You may not be able to live in the heat and you may not be able to live with extensive amount of exercise, but you can live comfortably with the measures I'm about to tell you. Then there are extreme measures, which we'll talk about in a minute. So the basic measures are enough water and salt to keep your blood volume up and to keep your fluid in your vessels. Yeah. So the standard recommendation for pregnancy, this may be different for your teen daughters, but for pregnancy, the standard recommendation is at least two and a half liters a day, preferably three and a half, and seven grams of sodium. A half a teaspoon is one. That is the amount of salt. 
So if you have people complaining of headaches, dizziness, heart palpitations, feeling faint, they do not have enough salt on board. There's obviously a tremendous fear of salt in our culture, especially as it relates to pregnancy. So there's a lot of unlearning and relearning that you have to do with your patients to help them understand this. And one way to get over this is to get away from granulated salt that they have to actually sprinkle or dissolve and move to pre-measured pills or potions. And I know this sounds crazy, but it can help with the internal programming that we got that salt is bad if they have to take a pill. I know it sounds bad, but we're working with the group psychosis. We're working with the, the, the cultural understanding or lack of understanding to get them where they feel healthy. So this is my favorite um, sodium uh, electrolyte pill. It's called salt stick electrolyte caps, and they are literally pills. And you can, they're buffered, which means that they are not straight sodium. They're comfortable on the stomach. Um, and so this has um, a little bit of vitamin D, magnesium, sodium, chloride, and potassium. And that is how the cell salts should come together. You notice how Ringer's lactate always has all the same cell salts together. This is all those cell salts together so that they can be di digested and absorbed properly. And one capsule um, contains um, 63 milligrams. So we need to take some of these every day. And you can get some that have a slightly higher component as well. These, I, I've started going down to try to find my minimum, but some you can get higher. And then this is the same brand, Salt Stick, with electrolyte fast chews. They're like sweet tarts that are flavored. This one's watermelon, I think. And they are uh, chewable, so you don't have to even swallow them. And uh, this one has 100 milligrams per pill. Um, and it gets you closer, right? It's not all the way there, but it gets you closer. We're all fans of Element, the sports drink, um, because this has a thousand milligrams per packet. So combined with chewing some tablets, taking your four pills in the morning, drinking the Element, um, you're going to get closer to that total. And you're going to have, uh, again, multiple different uh, absorption route so that your body can get as much as it can in. You also want to encourage your clients uh, to choose lots of salty foods in their diet, to salt their foods to taste, um, to cook with salt, all the things that our, <laughs> our culture used to recommend against, you're going to recommend for. Um, they cannot take huge amounts of sodium without needing large amounts of water. So do encourage that water intake, but not over fluid, right? We don't want to actually flush all of this out. So carrying that gallon around and chugging on it all day is not the goal here. Um, really, two and a half liters is not that much. Certainly, drink to thirst is a recommendation as well. Thinking of that two and a half liters as the minimum. One of the other important um, pieces of lifestyle uh, change for POTS, pregnant POTS patients is that they are going to need to lay down for part of every day. And there's just no way around this. They need to uh, become homeostasis, get that homeostatic experience laying horizontal for part of every day. 
Most POTS patients who will become pregnant feel the most uncomfortable in first trimester. And as their blood volume expands throughout pregnancy, they feel better and better. If at any point they feel worse, it's probably a water and salt ratio issue. So from once they pass out of first trimester, they should just feel better and better if they're following these diet recommendations and laying down once a day. Essentially, we're, we're resetting the clock, right? So when you get up in the morning, your blood starts to fall. Gravity starts to take its effect. Those pumps are not as effective, and so it starts to fall. And essentially, if we reset the clock, everything sort of moves back up a bit and then stand up for the second half of the day, we have a better two halves than if we stood up all day. When they do take that laying down break, their legs, especially their ankles, have to be even with their heart as when we're horizontal or they have to be above their heart to get the true effect. So reclining in an armchair does not do anything. It is true horizontal or even reverse gravity. You may notice in your pregnant clients that their heart rate, their resting heart rate raises over the course of their pregnancy, um, but they don't have as big of a jump. That is okay. That is an acceptable change Almost all pregnant women have a 10 to 20 beat rise um, in the course of their pregnancy. So they might've come to you with a heart rate resting in the 60s and at the end of pregnancy, it's in the 80s. That is okay. Pregnant POTS patients may have an even bigger jump of their resting heart rate, but they don't have that 30 beat jump to their abnormal POTS rise. And that is a really good sign. So for instance, you might have someone come to you in early pregnancy and their resting heart rate is in the 60s. Then when they stand up, their heart rate is immediately in the 120s. There's your diagnosis of POTS, uh, pretty extreme POTS actually. Um, as their pregnancy advances and they implement some of these system, their resting heart rate is now in the 90s and their heart rate only rises to the 110s. They no longer have the quote unquote diagnosis of POTS they definitely still have it, but their blood volume has expanded to the point where they don't have as big of a jump. That cardiac output has increased. The stroke volume has increased. This is a good sign. So don't be alarmed if the resting heart rate changes over the course of the pregnancy. Um, there is also, during the course of pregnancy, systemic vasodilation. Um, and this is because of those increased risks or increased levels of estrogen, progesterone, relaxing, you know, all those pregnancy hormones. Um, and the increased blood volume mitigates that vasodilation effect of the hormones. So overall, we see more blood able to move uh, in more places um, and uh, that might cause the heart rate to rise. So that's okay. Um, we have seen uh, multiple studies now show that uh, POTS does not increase the risk, but it can increase a really horrible uh, feeling uh, feelings in pregnancy. And so many women report really severe POTS symptoms from conception pretty much uh, on until second trimester. Um, and then mild to moderate symptoms will be reported. Uh, more of these symptom 
resolving lifestyle choices, uh, the better. Um, I have found that almost all POTS patients are in fact iron deficient. And so I recommend that all midwives also spend a good amount of time focusing on their clients, iron ferritin levels, bringing those up, um, really recognizing the deficit of lab reference values. I think if you've taken a course from me before, you know, lab reference values are determined by your community minus the outliers. So we take the, the all laboratory um, standards, they're required to take at least 125 samples, uh, take off the, um, the, the stand, one standard deviation from the mean, take off those outliers and report that average. And if you've ever done ferritin labs at your local lab, you'll get something from 10 or 12 or 15 uh, to 250 or 300 as the range of ferritin. That is of course not normal. That is the average of the range in the community you're serving. It is not normal. So normal ferritin for a healthy person with enough reserves to make it through their pregnancy is at least 125 to 350. During the course of pregnancy, that ferritin will drop as much as 100 points to sustain the pregnancy. So take your ferritin values with a grain of salt, depending on the stage of pregnancy that that patient is in. If you get that patient um, any time before 20 weeks and it's below 45, they are in crisis. They have critically low ferritin and they need to begin a supplement protocol. Um, I really love the iron protocol, um, with my friend Caitlin on Facebook. It's a Facebook group called the iron protocol. She also has a, a website by the same name. And I think she's writing a book by the same name. And it's got a very clear free guides, um, on the Facebook profile you can follow. Um, there is a specific dose amount. Uh, we'll kind of drop that up on the screen so you can see that as well. Um, and you can follow those guidelines to have a really a much better outcome. If your patient is very severely affected by their symptoms and they are very severely iron deficient, um, considering an iron infusion is not a bad idea. Um, iron infusions cause oxidative stress, which can definitely exacerbate pot symptoms. So we have to take it a careful consideration. And in the United States, I definitely recommend that you have a hematologist on board for this uh, diagnosis and treatment. Um, there can definitely be a lot of comorbidities with POTS. Um, many POTS patients um, have neurodiversities. They have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. They have uh, MCAS. There, there's a lot of other comorbidities. So in that circumstance, definitely get a hematologist on your team and discuss the value of iron infusions if uh, we think that might better their symptoms. But at the very least, oral supplementation usually makes people feel good um, on the market right now, most people are recommending um, uh, non-heme iron, and I'm kind of against that. I think we should be recommending heme iron. The only reason we're recommending non-heme iron is if they're vegetarian and absolutely refuse to have any animal product, right? If they don't want to get their iron sources, uh, they only want it to be a vegetarian, then non-heme is your only option. But the real reality is that Iron, all, all iron is very hard to absorb. In fact, 
Heme iron from animal sources, only about 35% max of the iron you take is actually absorbed. That's why it causes constipation in people is because they can't absorb the large doses they're taking. So for gastrointestinal comfort, it's much more recommended that they take it um, multiple doses in a row instead of one large dose and that they take it all before 1 p.m. when the hepcidin rises in the, in the liver and that they don't take it with calcium uh, containing dairy products because calcium ions block iron absorption. So it's kind of a, a complicated prescription because they have to take, you know, essentially 40 milligrams with three different doses, two hours apart before 1 p.m. without dairy every other day. <laughs> it's a complicated diagnosis. Uh, but once you start understanding iron metabolism, that makes a lot more sense. And it makes the gastrointestinal com comfort a lot better. Um, and also you want to take things that increase the absorption like magnesium, vitamin D and vitamin C. Um, when you take non-heme iron, only three to 5% of what you take is actually absorbed. So again, there is really no reason to be prescribing non-heme iron unless someone is vegetarian. Most POTS patients feel better with that and a large amount of vitamin D supplementation as well. There's been a lot of worry in our culture about vitamin D toxicity, but having worked in other cultures, I can tell you that this is a fairly erroneous worry. It's based on things that are not real. Um, so the standard of care in India for someone who presents with vitamin, uh, vitamin D deficiency is an injection of 600,000 a year. And they oftentimes will get that two or three times during their pregnancy. And I have literally never, never drawn someone outside of optimal range. And I've been drawing vitamin D on every patient I've seen since 2006. And I can tell you, I have never, never seen a vitamin D level, even approaching toxicity in any country I've ever worked. Now we there is something to be said that we are drawing serum vitamin D and that potentially in the cells, it can be higher. Um, but I just think it's, it's virtually impossible given how hard it is to get people to consume or be exposed to vitamin D or how hard it is to continue that 360 around the year, unless you live in the tropics and how hard it is to make that consistent. So I really want to reassure you. I'm gonna link um, a really fantastic hour long um, YouTube video to really the nation's expert in vitamin D supplementation. And he has a really great section on pregnant supplementation with vitamin D. And his recommendation is maintenance is 10,000 IU a day or 60,000 IU a week. That's maintenance. If they have a large amount of adipose tissue, someone who is obese, they need double that because vitamin D is actually a fat soluble steroidal hormone. It's not really a vitamin and it's stored in the fat. And so if we have more fat, we need more vitamin D. So his recommendation for people that are overweight or obese is 20,000 IU a day. Um, <clears throat> and um, I think mega doses is fine. I know that that's not in line with the mainstream medical world, but um, in, in actual practice, for 20 years uh, almost, I would say I don't, I don't see any problem with that. Let's talk about um, the delivery itself um, as we lead up to third uh, trimester. 
Um, right at the end of third trimester, sometimes POT symptoms can really be exacerbated. Um, and this is again, usually due to the decreasing stomach room because that baby is now quite big. And so um, depending on somebody's stability and symptoms, you may need to offer um, IV fluid as a part of your treatment for patients who have POTS uh, worsening. Some reasons why regular IV fluid treatment for POTS patients might be standard is if you live in a hot region or they are going through a part of their pregnancy in the heat, especially third trimester, in summer, they're going to almost always need IV fluid. If they are um, experiencing hyperemesis gravidarum, they're definitely going to need fluid. If their kids get a stomach virus and they also start puking, they're probably going to need IV fluid much more than the common population. So this is, um, again, probably a little bit off the mainstream, but I want to really give you some real in the trenches kind of advice here. Um, and that is IV therapy is very safe. It's used around the world all the time. It's very effective. Um, some normal saline or some lactated ringers is pretty much appropriate anytime you have the idea that it's needed and the patient says yes. You can pretty much always do that. Um, every midwife has IV skills or they should. Um, you should know the only real risks of IV therapy are minimal. Um, we can go through them together. Um, obviously a hematoma, try to get it in the vein. If you, they have a bruise, it's not life-threatening. Obviously prep your lines. Infiltration is a risk of IV, but you should never have that if you pro follow proper protocol. Infection is a risk, but IVs are in for maybe an hour, hour and a half. I don't see how there would ever be an infection developed there, even if you didn't use proper techniques. So that's not really a risk. Um, so IVs are very safe, y'all. I, I really don't want you to worry about this. It is the first line treatment in every single ambulance around the world. It is standard when you check into a hospital for just about any reason. There is no reason midwives should not be using this as a standard treatment for lots of reasons, but especially for POTS patients. So here's the, the dosage that really causes the best effect. And that is 2000 mill milliliters of saline or lactated ringers every week. If they find it uncomfortable to get two full bags in at one time, they can definitely have twice a week IVs, but then they're getting stuck twice a week and that's kind of a bummer. So um, it's best to just um, plan a week administration and run it slow enough that they can get up and pee a few times if they need to. And that will just cause just enough fullness that they should feel so much better, less headaches, less heart palpitations, less brain fog. They will just feel pretty much instantly better. By the fifth or sixth day, they won't feel so great again and they'll be ready for their next IV. So plan accordingly on the day of the week, depending on what they need to get done to make their life work. Um, you might be able to do IVs in their home. You might be able to do IVs in the office. They don't need to go to a hospital for this. You can absolutely take care of it. Um, and it, it gives them such peace of mind. Now, I would say I personally, as a pot sufferer, I got weekly IVs for almost a year. And um, I would say it was a huge part of my healing, um, but it does come with a few risks when it is that repetitious. So you'll want to be cautious about starting this process because once you start, it's very hard to get off this process. So um, 
<clears throat> either use it for first trimester emergency, I feel like I'm dying treatment, um, use it for um, like after a stomach flu to kind of get over that hump um, or at the end of pregnancy and third trimester until they deliver. But try not to do weekly IVs throughout their entire pregnancy unless they're very severe. And if they're very severe, please have other care providers on your team, like an obstetrician, MFM, um, or hematologist or someone else that can that understands their comorbidities and POTS so that you can get some help there, right? Um, during labor, they may also need an IV of fluid because in labor, we are working hard, we are sweating, we are sometimes in hot showers or hot baths. Even if you make them temperate, they do sweat. And sweating is honestly the most dangerous thing for a POTS patient because you lose those carefully guarded electrolytes and it is so hard to get them back. When you lose them, you also lose fluid. And as you lose fluid, you lose blood volume. And as you lose blood volume, all the symptoms get worse. So to mitigate those worsening symptoms, if we had say a hemorrhage, we wouldn't be able to tell what is actual hemolytic shock symptoms and what are POTS symptoms. So when in doubt, definitely put in an IV for a POTS patient. Now I'm gonna go off script and I'm gonna talk from personal experience and just general health recommendations for midwives working in the community-based setting. I really think it would be smart to have a conversation with your POTS patients about having a line in before they deliver. It's not required, obviously, we believe in patient sovereignty and total authority in that decision-making, but if you can go through with them the symptom picture, what could happen, how the postpartum goes, you might really consider um, having that, that saline lock in and running a bag um, a couple of times in their labor if it made them feel better. Now, if you have a multip who's gonna have a very quick delivery, I don't really have an opinion about this, but especially for VBACs or primates, um, it makes a lot of sense to just talk about how to keep them feeling great. If they needed IV during their pregnancy, they're very likely going to need it in labor. If they didn't need it there in their pregnancy, that's a pretty good determiner that they can get enough water and salt in on their own. So that's kind of been my determiner. Um, so if we have this conversation and the patient is like, yes, I understand. And I would like to have that option without being poked while I'm in pain and labor, then go ahead and place that IV at the earliest part in their labor and run it with saline and then, you know, lock it off and just leave it. And then as they feel faint or breathless, or their heart rate is climbing during your vitals assessments, or they wanna get in the tub, but they feel yucky, this can help bridge the gap and help them have the normal home birth labor that they're wanting without having to then become hypovolemic and have you look for a vein, or worse yet, make it through the labor and start to have a hemorrhage experience and have you hunting for a vein in very hypovolemic veins that are kind of collapsing without a lot of blood volume. So this is a, a safety mechanism as well as a comfort mechanism for the client. And if you get them involved on this right in the beginning, oftentimes, you know, they understand the value and they're very excited about it. Very few people will say no. They're like, you can do an IV in my house and I, don't, I can have my homework. Yes, I want that. Right. So that's very positive. Um, okay. And then the other really exciting news is that most people feel significantly better postpartum. So after they have that baby, they still have a bit of expanded blood volume. And in those first few hours and days, they feel amazing. So much so that one study reported that 50% of women felt better compared to their pregnancy and even before their pregnancy. 
Um, and 50% of their symptoms had completely disappeared by day five. So you can reassure people that they feel a lot better um, <clears throat> after pregnancy. However, as the week or, or week and a half after birth proceeds, those pre-pregnancy symptoms may return. And uh, POTS patients, uh, after they've had a pregnancy, do experience a higher prevalence of postpartum complications, including postpartum mood disorders. So it's very important if you if you have someone with chronic men, uh, chronic physical illness um, to investigate any potential chronic mental illnesses and make a plan for postpartum um, emergency measures, whether that is uh, a physician on your team, a counselor on your team, potentially medication that they've take, taken before, ready and available, because they may not want to be traveling in public um, when these symptoms come back and to kind of have a plan uh, for treatment at home would be great. Um, always remember, you can also give an IV of fluids postpartum and that might exacerbate some of the symptoms. But again, this is complicated and the mix of physical, pregnancy, mental health, psychosocial, uh, there's a lot of levels here. So make sure you have other people on the team who can help come on board and help guide those decision-makings postpartum. Okay, questions so far? With this complicated stuff, at least in my experience, they're overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed by life, full stop. Yeah. Yep. And then I come in and I'm like, well, here are all the things that we can do to help you feel better. And they go, and now it's worse. I'm so overwhelmed. I can't, I can't do that protocol. So if someone's that sick, they need IVs. Okay. So you start with IVs that maybe creates enough brain space that then they can incorporate some yeah. other things. Now, now, um, I think this is what is, is actually missed a lot in mainstream world. And sometimes even in midwifery world is when you have someone who's suffering and you give them solutions that work and they can't implement them. That is the diagnosis of brain fog. That is brain fog. Yes. So they are having such severe, um, access to functional executive function that they need help. They literally, literally can't. No, so can't. one option is to get an in-house um, uh, postpartum doula for prenatal care. One is to get mom or sister to come stay with them for a while. Um, if they have the means, uh, you know, order in food and, and create more functionality so that it isn't all on mom's jobs, on mom's shoulders. But for you as their care provider, giving them some more resources, which is going to be those uh, lactated ringer IVs so that they have more brain function is going to be the best solution. And remember, they mostly feel worse in first trimester. So if you get someone who feels worse in, worse in first trimester, do not hesitate to give them that really incredibly useful IV. You talked about healing kidney stuff. Well, there's a short answer and there's a long answer. The short answer is vitamin B1 in high dose. Okay. And this is because many of the symptoms of POTS are very, very similar to the symptom picture of a very old disease called beriberi. It happened when the industrial farming started to strip the germ off of grains and the, the main... Um, nutrient that then was absent from the entire diet was B1. And so when they started, um, you know, uh, adding B1 into fortified cereals, all that disease. 
So that's some old history and it's a very short story, but essentially when um, I add V1 back into the, into in high doses for that client, um, even if they're eating food sources of B1, we add it in a high dose. I think it heals the kidneys in a really special way. And one way that I see that is in sodium recycling. And this is all my hypothesis. You can't read this anywhere. I apologize, but I'm working on writing a paper. I have a question. When you were talking about postpartum hemorrhages, is there sort of a threshold for that? I mean, what the same specifically? Okay. Same exact process. There's no difference in the risk or the amount. There's a difference in the reaction. So someone who's already mildly hypovolemic because of their POTS and their inability to sodium recycle, which means they lose more fluid, they're going to feel horrible when they bleed. And you won't be able to do what I like to do, which is uh, treat based on hemovolytic stability, right? Instead of based on a number, I'm going to treat based on hemovolytic stability or instability. If she's already instable, I might be doing less or more, right? I might be second guessing my opinions or I might be doing more than she needs. Like they might transfer unnecessarily when all they needed was a bag of fluids, right? So obviously one of our first line defenses uh, to treat postpartum hypovolemic shock is to give replacement fluids. And what I'm saying is, in a POTS patient, you might consider doing that before you even have the hemorrhage throughout their labor because we know they're at risk for that. Okay, so having a lower threshold, would that be the same like with using Pitocin or any type of like anti-hemorrhagic um, homeopathic tinctures or medication or Pitocin? Like, would you give that sooner for those particular clients? I don't, or? I don't know of any studies that show that they will have... Um, that they need sooner treatment. I think you can treat the the hemorrhage appropriately according to how you normally do. I'm just reminding you that POTS patients will be already mildly hypovolemic before they bleed. So when and if they bleed, the reaction and the the consequences will be faster. So to mitigate that, let's bring them back to normal blood volume by having fluid on board in their pregnancy, in their labor. And again, you can base this off of getting to know them during your pregnancy. You can base this off the ability of them to report their symptoms um, and obviously their vitals. Um, but for many of them that needed IVs in their pregnancy to feel normal, they're gonna need IVs in their labor to feel normal. If they made it through pregnancy without any IVs, probably you can just bring them element drink after element drink and they'll make it through their labor too, right? It is important to know that POTS patients should really basically never be given plain water in their labor. It is, it will like, how do I describe this? You have to go back to the principle of osmosis, right? Um, When you have two liquid bodies with a semi-permeable membrane between them. Nutrients flow from the place of high concentration to the place of low concentration. Yes, that makes sense for everyone. So if she's hypovolemic, then the high concentration is her blood volume. And if we bring in water with no nutrients in it, um, we will be pulling the, the, the electrolytes from her blood volume and then excreting them because she still has waste to excrete. So 
it's pretty dangerous to actually give a laboring POTS patient plain water. You, are, you will be making them worse very quickly. I mean, I know that that sounds crazy, <laughs> but, but like, trust me on this one, we'll make them worse. So um, everything that they have to drink in labor should be as full of the things they are deficient in as possible. So that, this, that the osmosis happens in the reverse, right? So that the nutrients cross over this way instead of the other way. Eventually it will, it will harmonize because we're, 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 we're giving isotonic uh, fluids. We're not, we're not, you know, giving them excess, but it, if we're talking about someone who is prone to hypovolemic state anyway, we wouldn't want to pull electrolytes out of her blood volume to normalize the clean plain water that she just took in. So based on several available studies, uh, complications and adverse events to the mother and the infant do not appear to be increased in women with POTS more than the general population. Those cases that were uh, higher in the studies were actually unrelated to POTS. One study found an increased risk of hyperemesis gravidarum in women with pre-existing POTS, um, and the, the finding was unclear. Um, one found an increased rate of migraines in patients with POTS. Um, and obviously, if they have hyperemesis gravidarum or migraines, they need to be monitored closely with potentially an interprofessional colleagues, um, really managing their hemodynamic status. So making sure we have enough fluid and enough electrolytes. Um, they may need antiemetics so that they stop throwing up. They definitely need fluid replacement therapy. Um, and they may have an increased thrombotic, thrombotic risk, right? They might have an increased risk of clotting because their blood volume uh, drops low. So there needs to be a lot further studies in adverse events for pregnant POTS patients. And I'm certain there will be now that a full 40 million Americans have POTS. Um, breastfeeding is definitely safe and should be encouraged. Um, it may actually be even beneficial in reducing the symptoms due to the anti-diuresis uh, effect, right? We have, we pee out less when we're breastfeeding. Um, and of course, um, oxytocin continues to stay in the blood room, blood stream, which has enormous benefits on the pregnant person. And obviously breastfeeding is incredibly benefit for the infant. So, um, breastfeeding and POTS definitely do go together and is a benefit. However, some women with POTS may find it very challenging due to plasma volume shifts, uh, higher required fluids and salt intake, interrupted sleep schedule, which may of course make POTS overall worse, especially if it's um, hyperadrogenic POTS, um, which are those people who have a huge amount of adrenaline spikes every time they get a POTS flare up. Um, and so um, obviously encourage it, but have other ideas ready for them. Um, obviously increased caloric intake for mom is necessary in order to make enough milk. So, um, making sure that she has family supporting her and strategies for postpartum nutrition, at least 80% of patients with POTS have one or more comorbidities, which may present additional challenges in pregnancy, even more than the POTS does. There are several common comorbidities. Uh, with much higher prevalence in POTS, including migraines, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, chronic fatigue syndrome, myogic encephalomyelitis, cinescope, 
mast cell activation syndrome, and many autoimmune disorders, including Raynaud's, which can affect breastfeeding. Um, and of course, we need to bring in enough people into the care team to manage this. 40% um, of POTS patients have chronic migraines. So that is something else to be on the lookout for. Ehlers-Danlos uh, syndrome is a huge topic. And we luckily have an expert in this coming to speak at the Midwife Free Wisdom Conference this year. One of the breakout sessions is on EDS and pregnancy and other hypermobile spectrum disorders. So please come check that out. Mast cell activation is a very common comorbidity with POTS and EDS, um, and it's a multi-system disorder of mast cell hyperactivity that typically manifests with allergic symptoms, gastrointestinal dysfunction, other dysautonomias, genital uro and gynecological manifestations, and uh, there is extremely limited data and evidence for MCAS and pregnancy. Um, and it's, it's very hard to find the potential pregnancy complications associated with mast cell activation, but it is, it is definitely part of it. So make sure you get another provider on team. CFS or chronic fatigue syndrome, which now has been renamed MECSF, standing for myalgic encephalomyelitis and chronic fatigue syndrome is a common morbidity of POTS. And many patients qualify for the diagnosis of CFS due to chronic fatigue and post-exertional malaise. So PEM or post-exertional malaise is another syndrome or symptom that's associated with MECSF and POTS. And post-exertional malaise is exceptional fatigue anywhere from five minutes to 50 hours post-exercise. And so anytime the heart rate um, goes into their aerobic exercise zone for that patient for at least 15 minutes afterwards, they may experience PEM. Um, so patient, POTS patients should be very carefully coached to not do aerobic exercise in pregnancy because it can bring on a PEM, it can make MECSF worse, it can make the POTS worse, and ultimately if they're sweating, they're losing those electrolytes. So movement is definitely still advisable. Um, and they may be able to do uh, gentle yoga. They may be able to do swimming. They may be able to do stretching. They may be able to do a recumbent exercise where they are, are doing rowing or leaning back, biking, the recumbent biking. Um, but it's a very delicate place. So um, again, you're going to have to retrain your brain a little bit and reverse all of your language around exercise and pregnancy Studies definitely show that women who exercise in pregnancy have better outcomes, except POTS patients. So um, they, exercise does not make their pregnancy better. It does not make their outcome better. It makes them feel horrible because they are losing salt, losing electrolytes, losing fluid. Sweating is very bad for a POTS patient. However, they are encouraged to continue to keep fitness up because when we have um, more toned muscles, we have more voluntary contractions of muscles around vessels, which helps to replace the missing involuntary pumps that were damaged by the POTS in the first place. So it's a very contradictory place. There is some information online that says they have to have a routine for working out. There are some that say stop immediately. I would just encourage your patient to really listen to their body. If they are significantly overweight and unwell, you may actually consider not keeping them as a patient um, if the pregnancy exacerbates and they actually are not mobile at all. If your patient is normally mobile, 
can get out of bed, drive to your appointment, have a normal life, then they can be encouraged to move as is comfortable, uh, stretch a lot, um, but not actually get to the point of heavy sweating. Um, and of course, you can bring a POTS exercise expert into the care team if you need to as well. <clears throat> um, cinescope or pre-cinescope is very common with POTS patients. Again, 15% will actually faint, but most will feel like they are going to faint. This really, I think, you know, all those stories of, of our ancestors who fainted in pregnancy, I think they all had POTS. Um, and uh, I think that uh, we need to take this seriously. Even in a patient who has not uh, regularly fainting, they may begin to faint in pregnancy. Um, so warning them about having someone near them when they ascend stairs, when they're about to shower, encourage them to bring chairs into the shower so they can shower sitting down. Anything that reduces the likelihood of a fall is very important. Autoimmune disorders, about 20% of patients have with POTS have comorbid uh, autoimmune disorders, including Hashimoto thyroiditis, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, APS, Sorgen syndrome, celiac disease, um, uh, uh, Raynaud's, um, and uh, lichen sclerosis. And some special contraindications or considerations in pregnancy are associated with autoimmune disorders, including a higher miscarriage and a higher stillbirth rate. Um, they also may need antiplatelet or anticoagulation agents for women with lupus or APS. Um, and of course, monitoring for a possible fetal congenital heart block in pregnant women with these positive antibodies. Um, so again, this would just be a reminder that we need to have a multidisciplinary care team because this is very, um, it's a lot, it's a lot bigger than midwifery. Um, okay. So I think we covered most of the details. Um, highly, highly recommended that we start with non-pharmaceutical therapies like we've discussed, um, intramedous fluid being one that midwives can absolutely um, add. Compression stockings can also be utilized um, to help push the blood up. Um, I feel like this can work, but oftentimes doesn't, especially with curvy folks, uh, but it's worth a try if they want to. And there is no particular diet that has been demonstrated with POTS to have a better outcome. But I will say that with folks with MECSF, a very strict carnivore diet does reduce many of the symptoms. And since those are comorbidities, it would be worth a try. Um, either keto, carnivore, animal-based, um, something along those lines, uh, if the patient is interested, would definitely be recommended. Okay, so to summarize, Depending on the status of your patient, um, you may need more or less therapies. You know how to diagnose for it now. You know how to make referrals. You know how to treat that first line treatment of those fluid IVs. And ultimately, pregnancy does not increase the POTS symptoms for the lifetime, even though they make them feel worse during the pregnancy. And POTS does not increase the risk of pregnancy, although it does increase the risk slightly of postpartum complications. Yeah, I just, I hope everyone um, really gets ready for this because the expansion of this population is massive and we need to be ready to meet these folks' needs. Um, so stay salty, everyone.